In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the throne room. We'll be beginning with prayer here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together this morning and the opportunity to look into your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we go into the throne room and see your majesty and your glory, that we would know that you're on the throne and that you're sovereign over all things and that we can trust you with our salvation, with our lives. And I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help us to think well upon your text so that we'd learn more about who you are and your greatness and your majesty. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm very excited to get into the throne room in chapter 4. I want you to think in Revelation 4, we're in a combination pack, Revelation 4 and 5. Oops, I can't get this thing to go forward here for some reason. There we go. And so in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're going to be looking at the throne room. And I want to set the stage for you. Remember when we left Romans 2 and 3, John was addressing the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we had looked at a lot of the applications and saw that they were very apropos for us today. In other words, a lot of the applications to the seven churches are really for all Christians for all time, right? Well, now the question we have to ask is, well, why when we get to chapter 4, are we now going into the throne room? And I think there's three big reasons that I've discovered. First of all, when we get into the throne room, it serves as a chronological indicator showing that John is now focusing on the future. And I'm going to show you on our next slide, when we get into verse 1, do you remember how we had in Romans 1, or sorry, not Romans, Revelation 1, 1, we had that phrase that was borrowed from Daniel 2.28, the things that must take place soon. Does everybody remember that? Well, in Revelation 4, 1, he's going to be talking about the things that must take place after these things. So it's a chronological indicator showing from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22, we're going to be focusing on the future 70th week of Daniel. It's on the future, okay? And so it's very important that we see that structural clue, and we'll focus more on that in the next slide. So that's first of all. Number two, I think this is most important. The Heavenly Father is on the throne in chapter 4. Well, he's the one who hands the seven-sealed scroll over to the Son in chapter 5. So think about that. The Heavenly Father is giving the seven-sealed scroll, which is in some sense seen as the title deed to the earth and the kingdom, to the Son. What is that reminiscent of from the Old Testament? Daniel 7. In fact, turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Again, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Because there you see the Messiah who is given the throne or the uh, title deed, as it were, the kingdom, by the Ancient of Days who is the Father, right? So Daniel 7, 13 through 14, here was a vision that Belshazzar himself had had. And then Daniel ends up interpreting it. Belshazzar said this, he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So let's stop there. Remember the son of man is the favorite self-designated title that Jesus gives himself. So if Jesus is going to use one term to describe himself, what does he use most often in the gospels? 
He uses son of man. All right, so the son of man then is depicted here as going to the ancient of days. And it says here, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. All the way from chapter 4 to chapter 22, that's what it's about. It's about this kingdom that Christ is going to bring that is without end. And so, again, the throne room serves as this transition point where the Son is given this kingdom from the ancient of days from the Father. All right, the third thing is it serves to demonstrate from where the wrath contained in the seven-sealed scroll comes. What I mean by that is, and I'm going to reiterate this time and time again, we're going to have three different sets of judgments. You have the first seven are the seven seals. Then you have the seven trumpets followed by the seven bowls. All of those are depicted as coming from where? The throne. So this is why this is important for our interpretation in eschatology. Some eschatological uh, groups, like the pre-wrath group, says that the first seals, the first five seals, are not the wrath of God. They're the wrath of man. Well, wait a minute. Don't the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all come from the throne room? Yes. Therefore, what? It's an indicator that it's all the wrath of God. God uses the nations, and he uses even Satan for his purposes, but it's all from the throne room. He's sovereign over it all, and he is the one who's pouring out the wrath. Ultimately, he's the one who is in charge of it. Okay, so those are the three big things I think are significant about this throne room in chapters 4 and 5. Now, with that, let's get started in verse 1, where we see an invitation for John to come up in the Spirit to the throne room. Revelation 4, 1, it says, And I should say, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, notice the invitation to come up here. This is very reminiscent back in Exodus 19, where God had invited Moses up on Mount Sinai. So God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, invited Moses the prophet for revelation. Well, here Jesus is doing the invitation. So Jesus is being equated to Yahweh, and John now is the prophet, the apostle, who's giving revelation, in fact, revelation from the very throne room of God. Okay, so that's, I think, a connection that we're designed to see. Now, notice what he's asked to do. I'm going to focus on the end of verse 1, and then we'll focus more on the beginning of it here in a moment. But notice, this is Jesus saying this to John. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So again, that phrase, after these things, is our chronological indicator. Why? Well, remember, Revelation 1.1, you saw the same type of phrase, right? Revelation 1.1, it said, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must take place soon. Now, notice in Revelation 4.1 and Revelation 1.1, the term must in the red. Do you see that? Does everyone see must? Let me point it out, make sure we're all on the same page. 
Must. Must. D-E-I in the Greek. De 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 Delta Epsilon Yoda. It means it's the divine necessity. It's not just all these things are going to happen because I think that by the circumstances I see before me, they're probably going to come about. No, these things have been ordained by God. All right? Now, Revelation 1.1 was extremely significant. Why? Because it was built off of Daniel 2.28. Remember that? In Daniel 2.28, you have this vision of the four successive kingdoms that would come about, which culminates in this Roman Empire where the Antichrist comes from. That's the revived Roman Empire. But after that, you'd have a messianic kingdom. And you remember, Daniel says, these are the things that must take place. The same phrase, identical. But he says, these are the things that must take place in the last days. Now, notice in Revelation 1.1, it's not the things that must take place in the last days, but soon, imminent, at hand. Why? Because we're in the last days. And so these things are at hand. So now when we get to Revelation 4, we see the chronological indicator is showing us that John is no longer focusing on what was present during his day, in other words, his address to the seven churches, but now he's going to be focusing on this future event known as the 70th week of Daniel, exactly what we were talking about in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. In fact, let me uh, show you the programmatic verse. This is the programmatic verse for Revelation. Remember, Bob is teaching us through Acts, and we talked about a programmatic verse that kind of lays out the outline of the entire book of Acts. It's Acts 1.8. Remember, Peter says, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he doesn't say, by the way, where'd you get that goofy idea that the kingdom's coming to Israel? Right? Instead, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs, which are set by my Father's authority, but you're going to be my witness, witnesses, as all the apostles, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So how does the book of Acts go? Well, you see that the gospel goes to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the programmatic verse. It's the outline of the entire book of Acts. That's Acts 1.8. Revelation 1.19 is the programmatic verse, the outline of all of Revelation. So you have a lot of scholars who will say, well... I see seven equal divisions in the book of Revelation. Well, that's all fine and dandy if you want to structure it that way. But that's not how John structured it. John structured it according to verse 19. He was to write about the things which they had seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after these things. So the point is, when we get to Revelation 4, the focus is on the things that come after the address of the present condition of the church in John's day. So it's a focus on the future. All right, so from Revelation 4 all the way to Revelation 22, the focus is on the future. And specifically, as you'll see in Revelation 6, the focus is on the future 70th week of Daniel. All right? Now, notice in the beginning of this verse, I kind of went by that behold that I have bolded. Does everyone see that? Now, I've always joked that the behold, when you see that in Scripture, it means wowie, wowie take notice, right, which doesn't seem very uh, theological, very technical, but what's interesting, yeah, very scholarly, but when you see behold, the way John uses it, in particular through Revelation, is he wants you to take notice of another thing that he's seeing in his vision, and so every time you see a behold, he, he's basically saying, take note of this, 
and take note of this. And so he's leading you along to see what's important about what he's seeing in this revelation that's given to him by God. All right? Now, notice what he sees in the very beginning of the verse. He saw a door standing open in heaven. Now, the term heaven, I want everyone to memorize this. This is just a fun term to remember because this is where you're going. Heaven, uranas. Uranas, it means sky or heaven. It's the first Greek term I taught my little boy. He was two. I say, uranas. He'd say, uranas. We go back and forth. Where's Jesus come back from? Uranas. He knows how to say that. So Uranas is heaven, and it is the abode of God. And it is a real place. Now, is it physical in the sense of that you and I can travel there now? No. But in our spiritual bodies, remember to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, in our non-material portion, we can be with the Lord. It's a real place. It's the very abode of God. Yes, exactly. So I'm just going to point out a couple of verses that really show that this is a real place. Think about Acts chapter 1. Remember, Jesus ascends, and where does he ascend to? Well, he ascends into the sky, which is called Uranus. This is in Acts 1, 10 through 11. And you remember the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward towards the Uranus? This Jesus is coming back in like manner. In fact, I'll just read it verbatim. It said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky, Uranus? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven, Uranus. So do you see who Uranus is really interchangeable with sky and heaven? What verse was that again? That's uh, Acts 1.11. Now, later in Acts 3, remember Peter is preaching. Bob has just taught us through this. In uh, Acts 3.20 through 21, listen to what Peter said. He says, all of you have to repent In verse 20, he says, and that, this is the promise that God would send, that he would send Jesus, he says, the Christ appointed for you. Now, this is Acts 3.21. Whom heaven, Uranus, must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Jesus must remain in heaven Uranus, until the time of the restoration of all things. When does this time of restoration of all things happen? We don't know. It's at hand. In Daniel's day, it was always pushed off to the last days. But now, because of the first advent of Christ, it's at hand. When will Christ come forth from heaven to earth? We don't know. But Here, John is caught up to heaven, the very abode of God where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's given direct revelation by God. Now, let's notice what he sees here. He's in the Spirit, it says, Revelation 4, 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the dew again. There's our favorite term, right? Wowie, wowie. Well, look at this. A throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. All right, now, Notice this phrase that he was in the Spirit. He's claiming to be in the Spirit, and we have a choice to make. When John says that he's in the Spirit, should we understand that to mean that John was in the sphere of the Holy Spirit, which would be a capital S? Meaning, in the sphere of the Holy Spirit, 
would mean that if you're in his camp, you're receiving revelation from him. It would be the idea that you belong to him and therefore he's giving revelation to you. That's a possibility. But the other possibility is to see the spirit with a, a small s, meaning that John didn't travel physically in his body, but he saw this like a vision. Okay, so I'm not claiming that John was actually transported in a spirit body. Remember, here's the the reason I'm saying this. 1 Corinthians 15 distinguishes between a natural body and a spiritual body. And I'm not claiming that John went here in a spiritual body. Why? Because you don't get that until the resurrection. So I certainly don't think he's intending to say here that he merely was in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. I think clearly he's saying that he was in the Spirit. So what does that mean? And I think clearly what it means is that he saw a vision. He didn't transport or wasn't transported bodily, but he saw a vision of these things, a horasis, as it's called in the Greek. Let me give you a, yeah, Rich. I need my own microphone, I think, over here. Um, (laughs) Do we have any record of anybody dying and going to heaven? I mean, you know, Paul says, hey, I don't know if I was in body or in spirit, but he was up there. And, and so has anybody ever gone to heaven physically, or is it just by what Paul said, whether by spirit or... Yeah, he doesn't know, does he? No, and in fact, he didn't know. Remember, he talked about things that were not lawful to speak. In fact, right. he's given his thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't boast in it. So all these kids who are dying and going to heaven, I mean, that's got to be a myth, right? I mean, Well, you think of it this way. If the Apostle Paul himself was prohibited of right. speaking of that event, why does a four-year-old get to speak of it? Right, right, right. Right? So you and I are bound by Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That's how we know it's true. Any given experience from a four-year-old or any person, no matter what the age, no matter what the sex, no matter what country they're from, we just say, you know what, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. But what I can say is true is what I see in the Scriptures. And when Paul says he doesn't know, he really doesn't know. He, but yeah, so he saw And wouldn't the, it be unclean, I mean, to have somebody come into heaven that's not even been transformed into their new body? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of like... Ew, you know. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what? Um, All of us who die end up going to be with the Lord, you know, and we're given a new body, uh, a new body one day, but we're also immediately in his presence. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ, right? As soon as you trusted upon Jesus Christ, it was credited to you as righteousness. Now, one day we're going to be given a body that conforms to this new reality, a body that won't die, a body that won't perish, Uh, In that state, you and I will no longer sin against the Lord. But I want you to think about the saints now. The saints now that are in their spiritual realm with God, they're alive. They're alive every bit as much as you and I are. They just don't have a physical body. Okay, think about it. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They go after Jesus. And they they put him in this quandary about the afterlife. And what is Jesus' response? He cites from Exodus 3, have you not read? And it's all about the burning bush. Does everybody remember what happened at the burning bush? What does God say about himself? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, has Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob experienced the resurrection? Nope. But the point is, he's not the God of three dead guys. What kind of glory would that be to God if he was just the God of three dead guys? 
No, he's a covenant-keeping God. He's the God of the living. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those who are in heaven, they're everybody as much alive as you and I, just in a different realm. But one day they're going to be given their physical resurrected bodies to enjoy for all eternity as well. So we can conclude then that there's no way that you can go to heaven without a resurrected body. I mean... Well, again, to be, when you die, your body goes into the ground and your soul goes to be with the Lord, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 8. So that's prior to the resurrection. So you will be in heaven, right? What I'm getting at is that this kid who said that he died and went to heaven, that's, there's no way. Yeah, again, we don't trust in anything that's extra biblical like that. We say, you know what, I can't trust that. If the Apostle Paul himself was not permitted to speak about it, why would he? That would be my answer to that. So a lot of times people will ask me, you know, how many angels dance on the head of a, a pin? I don't know. You know, we're not given revelation. We're bound by what's revealed, okay? It's only what's revealed that matters at the end of the day, right? Yeah, well, I just read in a paper that one of these people that wrote a book recanted, recanted yeah. and said it was <laughs> yeah. a scam. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I honestly think that these are all scams, either that or that somebody hallucinated yeah. and thought it was real. <laughs> but I wrote a, years ago, I wrote an article refuting this, Visiting Heaven and Hell is the name of the article. Yeah. It was in the 90s. And little did I know that when I refuted it back then, there was a tip of the iceberg since then. There's been many more books written. And yeah. how can you conclude anything other than they're just trying to make money off of books? Right. You know, people, uh, they should write about what the Scripture says. Yeah, that's not exciting to them. Well, no, but then they couldn't sell books. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's not sensational. Yeah, can you imagine a book coming out to say, you know what, um, I wrote, just think of a book out there about 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Why do you think that would be a bestseller ever? But that's true. But a four-year-old says, you know what, I died and I went to heaven, and the pagans buy it by the droves. Why? Because has God said in the scriptures, it just doesn't matter, right? That's the battle that you and I are in, right? It's by scripture alone that we know God and we know what God has for us. All right, so let me give you some evidence that indeed John was in the Spirit and that he saw these things in a vision. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 9, 17. Revelation 9, 17. This is a very important chapter, by the way. In Revelation 9, you have the demonic beings that are in the abyss, and they're actually let out. Remember, they're temporarily sealed away they're going to be let out for a time that's part of the wrath of god so it's as if the world wanted the demonic realm through their divination during this age we live in and god gives it to them he gives them the desires of their heart in revelation 9 but listen to how john knows this revelation 9 17 it says and this is how i saw by the way let me stop there this term saw there is idon in greek and so you'll see that time and time again john says i saw now I remember Iden when I took my Greek class because I always thought of a southerner saying, I done saw that. <laughs> I have to have memory aids because I don't have that good of a memory. So remember, I done, I saw. And see, he keeps saying that over and over and over. And this is how I saw, I done, I done saw this in the vision, the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire, smoke, and brimstone. So notice John is saying there in the opening part of the verse that this was in a vision. 
a horasis. So that's exactly what he means by the fact that he's in the spirit. He wasn't transported bodily. He was given a vision by God. And many prophets through the Old Testament were given visions such as these. Okay? Now, let's move on here to the underlying portion that I have for you. Notice what he sees. He sees a throne that's standing in heaven. Now, what I want you to understand is that when you look at the throne of God, it's always associated with the temple. And the temple in heaven ends up being the new Jerusalem. So the throne is something that's always associated with the temple of God throughout the book of Revelation. I'll give you some examples of this. Revelation 7.15, later on he says, for this reason, and by the way, this chapter is all about the martyrs who are being murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. It says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Now notice the connection between the throne and the temple. Now the reason I'm belaboring this is, like I said, the temple of God, when you get to Revelation 21, is the new Jerusalem. Now, what happens to the New Jerusalem? Does the earth go up to the New Jerusalem, or does the New Jerusalem come down? It comes down. Therefore, the throne of God comes down. Remember Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6? The disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is coming to earth. And this is great evidence that, yes, indeed, there is a millennial kingdom. It's not that you and I, when we die or when we have our resurrected bodies, that we'll be sitting on a, a cloud strumming a harp or before the pearly gates and all these kind of uh, pagan notions of what heaven is like. No, it comes down. In fact, turn your Bibles. This is another important point with looking at the throne of God, turn your Bibles to Revelation eleven nineteen. Revelation eleven nineteen. Again, you see the connection between the temple and the throne. Notice in Revelation eleven nineteen. I hope everyone's there. John writes. He says, "And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple, and there were flashes of lightning." and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, the significance of that is we're going to see in the next few verses in Revelation 4 and 5 in those chapters, we're going to see that the hail, the earthquake, and this storm comes from the very throne of God. And what's very interesting is every time, you can read about this tonight, every time you come to the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, or the seventh bowl judgment, you have a storm theophany. Okay, you have the hail, the lightning, the earthquake. So again, you have it at the throne, and every time you come to the seventh judgment, so you come to the seventh seal judgment, and the seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets. And what do you have? You have lightning, hail, earthquake, storm theophany, the same type of storm theophany that was experienced at Mount Sinai. The very same kind. And so the significance of that, again, is it shows us that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls 
all of that wrath proceeds from the throne. Why? Because in Revelation 4 and 5, you are given a witness to the storm theophany proceeding from the throne room of God. So that shows us then that all of the wrath, whether it be the seals, the bowls, or the trumpets, they all come from God. So why do people say, well, this is the wrath of God and this is just the wrath of man in the book of Revelation? No, it's all the wrath of God. Why? Because the storm theophany imagery is prevalent through all of the judgments. Okay, so very, very important again. Now, notice he says at the end of this verse, he saw one sitting on the throne. This is the heavenly father, and I want to prove this. I want to show you a distinction between the heavenly father and Jesus. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5, 7. We'll be coming to this shortly, but I'll give you a sneak preview. Revelation 5, 7. This is the big transaction. This is the building off of Daniel 7. Notice in Revelation 5, 7, Talking about Christ, it says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Okay, so here's a great passage that you can use if you're ever in a Trinitarian debate. Who sits on the throne? The Ancient of Days. Who's that? The Father. Well, who takes the book from him but Jesus the Son? So you see a clear distinction between Christ the Son and the heavenly father. And again, that's reminiscent of what? Daniel 7, the son of man takes the title deed to the earth, the kingdom from the ancient of days. All right. Now we'll keep moving. We see this vision of God on his throne. In verse 3 it says, and he was sitting, or I'm sorry, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now here's what we have to wrestle with here. How far should we press this imagery surrounding these stones? There's kind of two extremes, I think. There's one extreme that says, well, you know, let's just be very general. Obviously, we don't know what these stones represent. Therefore, it just has to do with the grandeur of God. We can gloss it like that and just move on. Then there's the other extreme, which wants to always uh, look at every single symbol and try to be dogmatic and say, I know for sure what this means. But I think that there's a happy medium. And that is when we look at these images, in fact, what we have here are similes, right? Notice the simile. It was like, he was like a jasper stone and a sardius. And then you have a rainbow was like an emerald. Okay. Now, why do I say that's a simile? Remember in hermeneutics, you don't want to make a simile literal. So none of us should say, well, you know, God is a sardius stone. No, his appearance was like a sardius stone, okay? If I said my son was like a little tornado who went through our house and messed it up, I'm not saying he's a, literally a tornado, but he's like that, right? That's a simile, okay? Now, here's the point. I think we can know about some of these images from the Old Testament, what they mean. In other words, I think we can look at them, especially if they're given to us elsewhere in Scripture. And here we actually have similar imagery in the Old Testament. So let's begin with the Jasper Stone. Here's the difficulty with the Jasper Stone. The Jasper Stone in our day is very dull and opaque. And yet notice the description in Revelation 21:11. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 21:11. The reason I'm having you turn there is the Jasper Stone in the book of Revelation is different than our Jasper Stone. So we can't import our ideas of an opaque dull rock upon what the scriptures are depicting here as a Jasper Stone. So in Revelation 21:11, in the New Jerusalem, it says that they were having the it was the New Jerusalem itself had the glory of God, 
And it says her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Okay, so notice the jasper stone here is crystal clear. It's like a, like a diamond in its brilliance. So that's far different than our jasper stone that, again, is dull and opaque. All right, now I'm going to show you that it has a root in the Old Testament where God is often depicted when he's seen in a vision by a prophet as being brilliant, as being like a, a metal that's so heated that it glows, those types of things, right? All right, now, what about a sardius stone? Well, everyone recognizes that a sardius stone is fiery red. Okay, now, what about these two similes? What does it indicate about God? Well, there's been different suggestions. Let me read you a couple of them. First of all, some think that this is a reference uh, that distinguishes between the judgment of water and the judgment by fire. Okay, God destroyed the world once through water, and now he's going to destroy it by fire. I don't put any merit in that because I don't think that that's how that imagery is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Some think it distinguishes between the deity and the humanity of Christ. The problem with that is the one who's sitting on the throne is the Father. So I don't put any merit in that. The one that I do put some merit in is the idea that these symbolize the holiness and the justice of God. Now, why do I say that? Because in the Old Testament, that seems to be what this image or these images allude to. In fact, let me have you turn your Bibles. We're going to turn our Bibles to a lot of different things today. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 8.2. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 2. Here's a prophet of God in the Old Testament who sees, he doesn't use the same stones, but as you will see, no pun intended, what he sees is very similar. He just uses a different description. Now, again, the description, overall description I want you to think about is this brightness like a white light and the redness, and like, like fire. You'll see a very similar description. Ezekiel 8.2. So, again, this is Ezekiel having a vision of the Father, of, of God in the throne room. Or, or Christ, either one, it's Yahweh, right? He says, Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire. So that would be, let's just stop there. That would be very in keeping with the sardius stone. And from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. Okay, so notice it's a different description. They're similes, aren't they? But it describes, again, a brightness like a crystal or a diamond, a glowing metal that's very bright. And then there's a redness, isn't there? Like fire. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 7, 9. You'll see very similar imagery of God. Again, this is the vision that Belshazzar had, and he sees a similar depiction of God. Daniel 7, 9. Belshazzar's recounting this vision. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, there's the Father, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Now, let's just stop there. That's very similar to this jasper stone, this bright, almost uh, translucent, but clear, bright, white brightness. It, it, you know, how do you describe it? And I'm sure all of them are wrestling with it. Then notice it goes on to say, His throne was ablaze with flames. There's the fire red. Its wheels were like a burning fire. So again, let me just stop there. We see different descriptions, but they all have to kind of point out the same idea that when they see God, there's this brightness and there's this idea of being fiery red. Okay, now 
One of the symbolisms that many Old Testament scholars believe this points to is the holiness and the justice of God. Why? Because God is pure. He is holy. He is not only different than his creation, but he is untainted by sin. And the fire, of course, would be representative of the fact that he purifies, either through judgment, that is, he'll pour his wrath upon the world, or he saves his people through the wrath poured out on his son. But he's a God who will pour out wrath. Now, I want you to think about if that's the imagery here. And again, we don't have to be dogmatic about it. But in Revelation 4, 3, if that's what's being depicted about, by, about God, it would be very significant. Why? Because the wrath is about to, be, about to be poured out in Revelation 6. So wouldn't it be very significant that we see God's holiness and his justice on display? Now, what's very significant to me is it's also tempered by the fact that there's a rainbow around the throne. Now, what does the rainbow remind you of from the Old Testament? Promise. Promise. Exactly. That God is a covenant-keeping God. He made a covenant with all of creation that, yes, he destroyed everything once with water, but he would never do that again. One day he's going to, however, destroy by fire, isn't he? Right? And so it reminds us that, yes, there is a judgment that's coming, but it also reminds us that he's a covenant-keeping God for those who trust in him. I think that's very significant. In fact, let me just put up Genesis 9.16. Notice the, what God says here. It says, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So he is never going to destroy the world again by water, but that doesn't mean he won't do it by fire. All right? Remember, the flood that happened before in Noah's day is the exemplary judgment. Now, what do I mean by that? It is the judgment par excellence. When you go back to Peter, think about our books, First and Second Peter. Peter was dealing with false teachers who said God does not intervene in history. And so Peter has to refute them. And how does he refute them? He says, well, God did intervene in history. Okay, he's not some deist who took the creation. I mean, think about deists. They believe that God took the creation, they wound it up like a watch, and then he let it go. He walked away. He doesn't intervene in human history, in human affairs. But what Peter says is, yes, he does. We know that because he intervened in the creation. First of all, that was a supernatural intervention, was it not? Everything that we see natural was made by the supernatural. He intervened there, but he also intervened what? Through the flood. So God has a history of intervening in human affairs. So I want you to see that the flood is seen as the exemplary judgment. Notice what Peter says, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days, that's what we're living in. Now remember, when did the last days begin? With the first advent of Christ. All right? So we're living in the last days. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Stop there in verse 4. What's the beef or the complaint that these false teachers have? God doesn't intervene. Everything's going on as it always has. So he's not going to come back and intervene. He's not coming back. Therefore, we can live any way we want. And they were. They were living very licentious lifestyles. Peter's going to say, oh, yes, God has intervened, the flood, and he's going to intervene again. That's his argument. 
Notice verse 5, he says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, God intervened in the creation. Now notice in verse 6, also through the flood, he says, Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, here's what's going to happen in the future. He says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So you and I are in the throne room of God. We're living in the last days. And just as in the Old Testament, his holiness and his justice is on display because he's about to pour out his wrath at any moment because the world has been reserved for fire, for judgment. But at the same time, we see this rainbow that reminds us that God is a covenant-keeping God and that for those that trust in him, He's a God that won't wipe out everything just as he had promised. But he's going to be a a promise-keeping God who saves his people. I think that that's the imagery that we're intended to see. So it's both a stick, but it's also the carrot. It's the mercy for the people of God who trust in him. Okay, now let's come to our last section here. Who are the 24 elders anyway? Just like the debate between Augustine and Augustine, the age-old question, right? Well, who are these 24 elders? Let's wrestle with that. Revelation 4, 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, the debate here is who are these 24 elders? They're either men or they're angels. Okay. Now, people who say that they're men have good reason to say that they're men because elsewhere in Revelation... We see that the saints, men and women, in Revelation 3, were clothed in white. We see in James 1.12 and Revelation 2 that the saints who are men and women were given crowns. Well, these have crowns, so a lot of people suggest that they're men. However, angels are also depicted as wearing white. We see that in Matthew 28 and John 20, verse 12, Acts 1.10, etc., Crowns, we know, the Stephanus, the crown that's being used here, can symbolize authority. Well, what does Paul say in Ephesians 6.12? He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness. So the point is, there's a perhaps component of their being able to rule. In other words, the crown could symbolize that. Now, let me just set the stage for you. I think we can prove that these 24 elders are, in fact, angels. Now, how do we know that? Well, every time they're alluded to in the book of Revelation, they are alluded to in association with the other angels. Okay, for instance, turn your Bibles to Revelation 7.11. Revelation 7.11. Now, again, this is the martyrdom chapter. That's what I like to call it. Revelation 7, 11, it says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. So notice here that the elders are associated, again, with what? The angels. All right? Now, let me give you the coup de grace argument. This is something that I found when I was studying. I kept reading chapters 4 and 5 over and over. And here was a find that I was excited about, I think that gives us a definitive answer. Notice here in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, the discussion here 
in Revelation 5 is from the 24 elders themselves. They're singing about how God had saved men from this world. And notice in Revelation 5, 9, it says, and they sang a new song. So here are the angels singing a new song, these 24 elders, if they are angels. And they were saying this, they were saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now notice in verse 10, these are the 24 elders singing this. They continue, they say, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Notice the them that I have highlighted. That's extremely important. That's a third-person plural form of autas. Now, that means it's not the angels, these 24 elders, aren't saying it's us. In other words, they don't say, you have made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God and will reign upon the earth, but you made them. Okay, now who are they singing about the redemption of? Redemption of men and women. So here, these elders are distinguishing themselves from those who had been redeemed. All right, I think that that's the best reading. So these 24 elders, it's very interesting. They're angels, angelic beings, and they're singing praises to God. And I want you to think about, remember when we look at this oftentimes around Christmas time in Luke chapter 2, remember when the shepherds are out in the field and all of a sudden these angels come and what do they do they express the good news of the gospel and they're basically singing praises to god now think about that in the known day in the roman empire the gospel was about the good news of the birth of the emperor in fact there's evidence that the emperor would force people to worship him and to celebrate his birthday. That was the Evangelion. That was the good news. And in fact, they would have choruses of people who would sing praises to the emperor. But when the little baby Jesus comes, there's no man that recognizes it. And so God sends forth his angels. And the true good news isn't the birth of the emperor. It's birth of the son and the angelic beings, just like we see here, come and sing. And they sing choruses. So yes, there was choruses sung to the Roman emperor by human beings. But God sent his angels to sing the chorus of Christ. And they sang out with those shepherds who had no status in the world in those fields out by Bethlehem. Isn't that beautiful? So I want to make a proposal with you today. And again, a proposal means we don't have to be dogmatic about this. But here's something I think that we can learn and perhaps we can see how Scripture fits together. So here's my proposal my proposal is this. In 1 Chronicles 24, verses 7 through 18, you have 24 priests serving in the temple, in the tabernacle. Now, the 24, it's not just 24 priests, but 24 different divisions of priests. Now, remember, does everybody remember Nadab and Abihu? I know Bob has written an article on this. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu were priests who offered profane fire that was not ordained by God, and they died. They died from that. Well, the priesthood had to go from them to their brothers. And there was two brothers, Eliezer and Ithamar. Say those names fast, right? Talk about have a kick-me sticker, Ithamar. I don't know what that means, All right? But those two were given the priesthood. And so there was 24 divisions of priests that flowed from those two. And we read about that in First Chronicles 
chapter 24. So you have these 24 divisions of priests that are serving. Well, isn't it interesting, as we see around the throne, you have 24 angelic beings serving the heavenly tabernacle. Okay, now the reason I mention that is, remember, when Moses creates everything that God tells him, he says, hey, make the tabernacle like this, do this, do that. He's giving him all these instructions on Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 25, 40, God says to Moses, he says, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Okay, so what the temple was in Israel was really a shadow or a pattern of perhaps what was in the heavenly realm. In fact, that's what the writer of Hebrews seems to be indicating. Hebrews 8, verses 4 through 5, talking about Christ. He says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, talking about the priesthood now, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Right? Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, this is the passage I just quoted from, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So, brothers and sisters, what the Israelites performed was a shadow of what was in the heavenly realm. Now, here's something I want you to think about. The objection to this is people will say, well, come on, Eric. And I've heard this because I've, I've debated a few people that will say, well, look, these 24 elders, how can they be angels and this new priesthood? Because Jesus is the priest. And that's true. Think about the Levitical priesthood. They were offering sacrifices, right? Well, now we have one sacrifice once and for all, and it's Christ. He's the really only the only high priest that we have. So what in the world are these 24 elders, if they're some form of priesthood, what are they doing? They certainly can't be offering sacrifices. That was offered once and for all by Christ. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5, and we'll focus more on this when we get to it. I already read this to you, but I want to focus on it. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. So think about as you're turning to Revelation 5, 9 through 10. These priests who are around the throne, these angelic beings, they're not giving any sacrifices at all, but they're singing to the one who was the sacrifice. That's now their job. Their job isn't to offer sacrifices on behalf of sinners. Their job is to sing about the once and for all sacrifice from Christ who sacrificed once and for all for sinners. That's what it says here, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. It says they sang a new song. A new song saying, worthy are you. These 24 angelic beings are saying to Jesus Christ, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So in the heavenly realm, we have these 24 that are singing about the priesthood of Christ. And notice you and I now, because of our faith in Jesus, we've been made priests. That's one of the things that Bob and I have been big on is the priesthood of every believer. The Catholic Church has their priests, right? But we have the priesthood of every believer who belongs to Christ. And in the heavenly realm, you have these 24 angelic beings who sing praises constantly to our great high priest, who made atonement for us. And so that's, I think, 
the significance of these 24 elders as they sing the praises of Christ around the throne. Yeah, Bob. Eric, you get the astute reading oh. <laughs> award. I get free coffee for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good reading. That's a good, okay. It helps me. Thank good. you. Good, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, at that time, you know, so what we're going to do now is we're going to work. We're, we got 11 verses that we have to go through for chapter 4. We're going to be working our way through the throne room. We're going to start on cha- uh, verse 5 of Roman, or Romans, Revelation 4. By the way, I cite Romans 4 so much that I'll say Romans 4 over and over because I always use it in my debates about justification with faith, by faith alone. So you'll catch me saying that quite often. But we're going to be in Revelation 4, 5, working our way all the way through verse 11. Then we'll get into chapter 5. In chapter 5, you're going to see that storm theophany come up, and that's very significant. So with that, though, I want to take any questions, comments, concerns, ideas. Yeah, Brian. I've never seen that, the way you just laid that out. That's uh, very convincing. Oh, thank you. I only have one thing that I can possibly think of, and that is in the hierarchy of when you have the elders yeah. who are a uh, an authoritarian type figure, yeah. uh, are not the saints above the angels? Yeah. Or does not that hierarchy exist in heaven? Is that done away with? Yeah, you know, I, I wrestle with that too. I don't know if we can say that, um, we certainly know that from the book of Hebrews even, that uh, man was made lower than the angels, you know? So angels are a higher order being. But I don't think that that necessarily plays into... Um, think about, um, in fact, in First Peter, let me read you something. First Peter 1.12. Think about this relationship with the angels and us. <clears throat> talking about the prophets. Now here Peter is talking about how prophecy was given to the, the prophets and that they were serving not just themselves but us in revealing the gospel. 1 Peter 1.12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things. Now, this is the gospel, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay, so even the angels seem to be interested in the salvation of men. Now, I don't think that that plays into a ranking or a hierarchy, um, I wrestled with this too because the elders, they're called uh, presbuteros. And that's the term for elder. Um, Mike and Steve, they're elders, they're presbuteros. Uh, but what's interesting is perhaps it's a ranking within the angelic realm. So, in other words, I don't see the distinction in rank between men and angels. There just seems to be a different order. God redeems us and the angels are interested in it. But we're, we're kind of separated from that. They're a higher order being. We're the ones who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And even angels are just. They long to look into those things. But when it comes into the ranking of angels, it seems perhaps that these 24 uh, are elders or have a special uh, ranking within them. Just as the, the Levites yeah. and the priests would have a special ranking within uh, the, the temple sacrifices and the temple cult in Jerusalem with the Israelites. So. When we get our resurrected bodies yeah. will they still be a higher order being yeah you know what i just don't think we can know i mean obviously we're going to be um in glorified bodies never to sin never to perish but i um i i just i yeah i don't know yeah sorry yeah steve eric the um reference and correct me if i'm wrong here but 
it seems like there's a reference that says the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne. Yeah. Now, why, if this were angels, why would angels have crowns? Yeah, you know, the, I think, again, it expresses authority and rule. That's what we read in Ephesians 6, um, that the rule and authority is often demonstrated symbolically through a Stephanus, a crown. And so the rule and authority of the angels may be expressed in that way. And so what they're doing is they're expressing that all honor and rule at the end of the day belongs to God. And they cast their crowns. To me, let me just back up one slide. To me, the most devastating evidence that these elders must in fact be angelic beings is that verse 10. Because it's hard to argue when they're singing this, the 24 elders are, you have made them pointing to men and women to be a kingdom and priest to our God. Um, They're obviously distinguishing themselves from those who had been redeemed. And so to me, that's the best evidence and just devastating evidence. If I didn't have that, I would say, you know what, I'm not sure. But to me, that's, that's really hard to argue against that one. So I think we can be fairly dogmatic from that, that, yeah, these must be angelic beings. They certainly can't be men because they're distinguishing themselves from them. So I hope that helps. But again, you know, by the way, this isn't anything we have to go on the mat. You don't, you have, to, you don't have to start a new church because someone believes that the 24 are 24, <laughs> 24 men. And by the way, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And if someone has a better reading of the Jasper Stone and the Sardius Stone, also, we don't have to divide over those things. But I'm giving you the, the best reading that I, I can give you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's very exciting. Yeah. Nancy. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. We... <laughs> well, this is backtracking to the, that jewelry, the Sardis and the Jasper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there, what is the relationship between the reference to um, God being, it's not a simile, it's he is a consuming fire. So is that tie into that holiness or yeah. burning bush or how does that all fit? Yeah, in? that would be a metaphor. Oh, okay. okay, so the, the only difference between a metaphor and a simile is simile uses like or as. Yeah. You know, they'll, um, he's like a lion, that would be a simile. A metaphor would simply be to say he is a consuming fire. Now, obviously, um, we know God is, you know, different than that. But the point is, it's talking about an attribute of him, his holiness, and the fact that he can't tolerate sin, the fact that he sees all things, those type of things. And I think that that's exactly what's being referred to here by the descriptions of God on the throne, that he's a God who's holy, and he's a God who's just, therefore he must punish sin. And what do we see in Revelation 6 all the way to Revelation 19 into 20? we see that very wrath come forth, not upon those who trust in Christ, but upon the unbelieving world. So, yeah, amen. By the way, there's other, um, think about sometimes God is likened to a, a man, or there'll be, we, we call that personification. Um, things that happened to only us human beings are attributed to God. Um, like, for instance, he remembers, or um, he measures the universe by the span of his hand. You know, does he really have a hand? Well, no, that's a, uh, a personification of God, isn't it? Like he's a human being. A, um, so or an, what we, we may call it an anthropomorphism. Anthropos, of course, is man. So an anthropomorphism would be the idea that a man-like quality is being attributed to God. So the reason that's important is when you see, like, for instance, it says that God remembered. Remember, that's, no pun intended, that's an anthropomorphism. God never forgot to begin with. But God has condescended himself in human language that we understand things right? So we can learn 
and we have to have a point of reference. Okay, so we can't just speak in God speak. We have to speak in terms we understand. So those are types of things that I help, or I hope that help you understand Scripture. So we'll talk about those someday. We'll talk about similes and metaphors and all those different things. And maybe we'll do a hermeneutics class sometime. So anyway, God bless you. Next time we'll be in Revelation four or five. Yeah, Rich, one more thing. The earth uh, is reserved for fire. So is. The earth is reserved for fire, so is that going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation and then God's going to restore it or something for the thousand-year millennial rule? What you actually see is after the thousand years, remember there's the Gog-Magog battle. They come against Christ and his people at Jerusalem and then God calls down fire. It's at that point that you're going to have the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and that's when you get into Revelation 21. So the actual destruction of the earth is after the millennial kingdom. Yep, after the thousand years. Yeah, good question.